This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Making the changes necessary to address the climate crisis is super complicated, and that's putting it mildly. It can be overwhelming to think about how you can be part of the solution. Should you buy an electric car? Switch to more efficient light bulbs? Turn down the temperature in your refrigerator? Does any of that even help when the problem is so big? And you might have heard people saying, stop focusing on these small things. They might make you feel good, but we need to focus our energy on systemic change to make a dent in climate change. And there's some psychology research that backs up that theory. But a new study in the journal Energy Research and Social Science suggests that that line of thinking might not tell the whole story. Researchers found that when participants were given the opportunity to reflect upon their individual choices, they were actually more likely to support climate policies. Greg Sparkman is a co-author of the study and a postdoctoral psychology researcher at the Andlinger Center for Energy and Environment at Princeton University. His work focuses on understanding social change through the lens of social and cognitive psychology. Greg Sparkman, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, so to start off, where does this idea that like making small behavioral changes actually makes people less likely to support climate policies what was that like body of research that you're sort of looking at um, in this study? It's this sort of argument that it's like, it makes us feel better to use reusable bags at the grocery store, for example, but like, it's just this sort of like shifting responsibility on the individual. And it's like, not really doing anything. Like, where did that argument come from? And what does this previous research sort of say about that? That's right. So initially, there was one study done that looked at how people responded after kind of reflecting on some of the sustainable behaviors they did. And one concerning finding they found from that is that people who had reflected were less likely to want to support an increase in a carbon tax. In this case, a study was actually done in Japan where they already have a carbon tax. So that's sort of building on like, oh, like this seems not promising. You know, people doing these sort of small things are actually making them not want to buy into big changes that are obviously needed. So for you, what sort of like sparked for you to sort of develop this study to sort of pick that idea apart a little bit more? Part of it was that it got a lot of media attention. So this idea that sustainable behavior is only a distraction and that people see these actions as sort of zero sum with uh, policy support was starting to get really prominent. It got a lot of headlines. Um, it came around the same time that you were seeing headlines talk about how just a handful of companies were responsible for the vast majority of emissions. And so all those things were kind of coming together into some kind of a narrative that like, you know, we just really can't afford to talk about sustainable behavior right now, or else it'll distract from what's really needed, which is climate policy. Yeah. And so we'll dig into sort of like how you tried to get into that and go into more into this research, which is really interesting. But I first want to kind of talk about this psychological concept that sort of underpins this study called spillover, which is a wonderful name for a psychological concept. So um, my understanding is that it means like a behavior in sort of like one realm or one part of life can sort of affect behaviors in another part. Is that the right understanding? And also, can you sort of give me an example about how this framework is useful in understanding how we make change in terms of climate policy? Yeah, so spillover is a huge deal. It's a huge deal because in climate change, there are many behaviors that we need to change and shift. And so there's a huge concern over, well, if I start engaging in one, 
is that going to make me less likely or more likely to engage in all the others I need to do too? And I think you're pretty close in your definition there. It's, <laughs> you know, the idea that, right, when we engage in one behavior or endorse one attitude, we might become more likely or less likely to endorse a series of other things. So maybe it's the case that I do a good deed and I feel like I can rest on my laurels. And so I actually lax my standards on future actions, right? So like, Maybe I exercise and then later I feel justified in eating cake would be a pretty prime example of that. And so that would mm -hmm. be a case of spillover. Or maybe right. it's the case that as I start exercising, I actually get a gym membership and I feel like, you know, I'm the kind of person who really wants to kind of live a healthy lifestyle generally. And I'm going to do that in my diet too, in which case you get this consistency effect. And that would be another kind of spillover. So spillover can kind of go either way, right? It can promote similar actions from the initial one, or it could actually make us feel licensed to do the opposite later too. Yeah. And so you sort of try and get at that. What is sort of influencing people to go one way or the other? And in this study, you had people sort of check off the sustainable behaviors they did, like turning off the AC or the heat when they weren't home, or, you know, using energy efficient light bulbs instead of traditional ones. And then part of the study, which I found was interesting, is then you had people reflect on these sort of decisions can you sort of explain what that personal reflection task was and sort of like why that step was important in terms of shaping people's perceptions? Yeah. So in this study, what we had people do is, as you kind of noted, we had people go ahead and reflect on sustainable behaviors they did. Um, and they either did this using this checklist task, which is real straightforward, just like, do you do this behavior? Yes, no. Um, and then for some people, though, we had them do that. And then in addition, we asked them, great, how do these things connect to something that you value or something about your identity or something about how you feel like society ought to be? Um, and then they, what we call internalize those actions more, where they kind of connect them to those values, identities, and a societal outlook. Yeah. And so what did you find in terms of the people that did that extra step of reflection? So what we found is that if people just reflect on the behavior in a really concrete fashion, and then they're asked about a policy like a carbon tax, and it's described as being personally very costly, then mm -hmm. people, as a result of reflection on their behavior, felt like, you know, I already do a lot. Do I really need to support this really costly policy too that's going to like increase my utility costs, for instance? Mm -hmm. And they became slightly less likely to support that policy. But when people reflected on their behavior and then thought, you know, this actually does connect to certain things that I value or my identity, then that motivated them to be more consistent and they no longer felt like, oh, I shouldn't support this policy because I already do a lot. Instead, they actually had greater policy support for that item. Yeah, yeah. And so another thing that you had sort of touched on um, in your answer and is sort of a big part of the study, too, is like sort of how you frame policy decisions. Like, is this an individual sacrifice that like you're personally going to have to like live with? Or is it sort of a more industry-based regulation, whereas it's not like maybe affecting your day-to-day? day as much. Can you sort of explain the role of framing in that way? For sure. So we wanted to know when are you likely to see these different spillover effects? And one theory that we had was, I bet the way you talk about the policy is going to change whether or not previous sustainable behavior is going to make you more or less likely to support that policy. And one of the biggest ways you can kind of discuss policies differently is by emphasizing that all these costs are going to come to you and really making it seem like the bill is passed in order to make you pay more. And that was like the intention. Conversely, you can say, actually, the bill's passed because we really want industry to emit less carbon. And so we wanted to see if you changed how, say, a carbon tax was framed, if that would have a big impact. And 
primarily it has a huge impact. People just love the policy more when it's framed as we're trying to really tax um, businesses that are emitting lots of carbon. And they're less excited about it when it comes to um, the cost being framed as falling completely on the individual or directly on the individual. Right. It's sort of like, okay, corporations are going to pay the big share of it or your tax dollars are going towards it. Your taxes are going to go up, for example. No one wants to feel like this is something that they have to pay more for. Of course. And I think I think the big emphasis, too, isn't just on like, because obviously companies pass on much of the cost, right? They over time will move towards more sustainable practices. And so that cost won't be passed on as much going forwards, or at least that's the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also the way in a lot of these studies, when they poll people about these policies, they just tell them straight up, like, this is going to cost you this much as if the bill arrives to you directly rather than say, going to the mm. companies first. Right. So they don't frame it like, you know, there may be costs that trickle down to you because that's how the economy works. It's more like it's going to cost $45 billion and people don't really, you know, they're not really thinking about, oh, if it costs $45 billion to this oil corporation, like, what is that going to mean for me? It's hard to compute that, I guess, unless you're prompted in that way. That's right. And we thought this would matter in this context, because when someone tells you, um, hey, tell me about all the behaviors you already do to try to address this climate change problem, then they go, great. How about we charge you more money now, too? Someone (laughs) kind of feels like, I already do a lot, and now I'm almost like getting punished for it. It feels like, you know, it's not really compatible with our sense of reward for effort. The other, like, interesting sort of thing when I was reading through the study was that for a lot of people, they noted that a lot of their energy saving practices were also financial incentives. So like you use less energy and then you have a lower energy bill every month. And I feel like that's a big motivator for people. And also in terms of what I've seen in terms of like encouraging people to invest in sustainable energy, where it's like, okay, maybe you like put up money up front for solar panels, but then your energy bills will be lower or this sort of idea of like, you know, using less energy, turning off your AC, turning off your lights. It's not just like good for the environment, but it's also saving you money. If the people are pushing this sort of argument of like making choices based on saving money, is that sort of like not playing into this sort of spillover effect that you said? Because people aren't making the decision necessarily based on their own like political or ideological beliefs or like their own sort of perception of themselves. It's more just like financially based. That's a good question. Um, and I think a lot of the times you're right. A lot of pro-climate behavior is framed as just cost saving. Like, why mm-hmm. why should you do this? It'll save you money. That's why. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we found that when participants were likely to kind of reflect on their values, but the only value that they were willing to mention was like, I'm just doing this for saving some money. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't necessarily help. It still kind of neutralized the effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes to reason that if the whole idea here is that consistency is what's carrying this effect, right? Mm-hmm. and you tell me the only reason I do these behaviors is to save money, then, well, it'd be awfully consistent of you to say, and I don't like any policy that's going to cost me more money either. So that's like a concern, right? Because there's a lot of promotion of sustainable behaviors out there, but they need to give people some way to scaffold this onto the idea that they care about climate change. It doesn't necessarily have to be the top reason, but it should definitely mm-hmm. be part of the explanation. Because if you keep framing these behaviors as simply saving money, and that's the only reason to do them, then we probably shouldn't expect there to be a lot of positive spillover onto climate policy support. Mm-hmm. Right. And like in the short term, certainly like the government is not going to save money by investing and in dealing with the climate crisis. I mean, it's going to take money and resources to implement policies. 
on the larger scale too. Right. Yeah, there are simply costs here. And we generally want to convey the message in both our lifestyles and the policy support that this is worth it. The other thing that I saw was that you sort of used the example of this failed ballot initiative um, to impose a carbon tax in Washington state in 2018 um, and how that sort of failed by a pretty small margin. And actually, I was like looking into it before the before this interview and very recently in May of this year, the state did pass sort of this like comprehensive bill, but the carbon tax piece in this sort of like package wasn't as robust as that other proposal, but there has been some movement on it. But how do you think sort of like tapping into this sort of like psychological understanding of how people make these decisions, especially like, you know, ballot question is a very much like people vote yes or no on it. How just sort of tapping into this psychological understanding, how would that have helped the outcome in that situation? Or how could have policymakers sort of utilize this understanding? It's a great question. Yeah. So yeah, we wanted to first, we mentioned that in the paper, because we're just trying to size up the sort of scale of our effects and the scale of real world things that matter. Mm -hmm. And right, we're seeing that when people reflected on behavior in a way that connected to values, they got this kind of like plus 6% bump. Right. Whereas when they don't, then they kind of lose that and it kind of goes the opposite direction. And so we think that, you know, to the extent that there is a series of kind of sustainable behavior campaigns going on, Mm -hmm. um, you really want them by and large to emphasize that like we're doing this because it's part of a broader commitment we have to reaching our sustainability goals and decarbonizing society. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that you live in a state where people are already engaging in a lot of sustainable behaviors, like if you're in Washington, for instance, uh, you really want to leverage that to your advantage, right? You want to say like, look, there's so many things we do in our day-to-day lives. And the reason we do them is because we know this is a serious deal. The reason we do them is because we're people who care about this issue. And that's why we're going to support this policy. You want to kind of lay out the consistency argument and kind of leverage that. Because alternatively, someone could try to leverage it the other way and go, you know, you already do a ton of stuff. They shouldn't charge you more money. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And then, I mean, the other thing that I was thinking about was that, you know, everyone in this study sort of agreed that climate change is real and it's posing a big problem for us and we need to make changes. And that's like not, unfortunately, not a universal sort of understanding. And so that sort of was making me think of that, can this sort of spillover effect can that be used for people that sort of like aren't on board in general or is this sort of phenomenon something that's like only can be used for people who are already doing sustainable policies that like are already on board that something needs to happen in terms of big policy change for climate change you know yeah that's a great question so there is right some polarization around climate change not just the idea about what policies needs to happen or not but also just like which beliefs are true or not true Mm -hmm. about climate change Um, Now, we're at a point, fortunately, where just about 70% of people understand that climate change is a man-made problem and that Mm -hmm. reducing CO2 is what we need to do. So the vast majority of people in the U.S. are on board. There is, however, a very salient minority of folks who haven't gotten that message and are really entrenched in an opposite kind of social reality where that's not true. Mm -hmm. Um, So to the question, could we reach those people with this message? To an extent, yes. Um, It's not going to be so easy, obviously. But Mm -hmm. the idea is that if people see themselves as somebody who, for instance, I don't want to be a wasteful person. I don't want to be a person who doesn't care about my surroundings. I want to take care of my community. There's broad values that just about anyone has um, in this country. And I think that to the extent that you can kind of 
sort of make the argument like you do lots of things consistent with these values, this is just another one of those things, then you're liable to be able to leverage those values for a wider audience, even if they don't necessarily believe in climate change, as long as you can make the argument that this is consistent. That's going to be a challenge. It's not going to be as easy, Mm -hmm. but it's not something I would write off as an impossibility. The other thing is even those who deny climate change, I think they're also just kind of hesitant about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the case. I mean, some people are, are, you know, active participants in that denial process. Right. But a lot of people are just sort of like in a shrug sort of space about it. Like they're <laughs> right. like, oh, I don't know. Aren't there other contributors? Like there's, so, right. there's, there's like this kind of chunk of people. Right. So really the people who are like, you know, will deny it tooth and nail to the end. Right. Is really, you're getting now just that 30% gets cut in half, maybe just to 15%. Right. Who are like at that level. And there's another chunk of people who just think like, well, I don't know if humans are really that big of a contributor. Mm-hmm. And I think for those folks, you know, there's still a lot of possibility. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so interesting. And like, I think also when I'm thinking about it too, it's sort of like, how do you communicate, like you said, these sort of personal values that are maybe outside of a political ideology, I guess, (laughs) on like tapping into things that aren't necessarily, it's like policies are political, like inherently policies are advanced typically by political parties, but sort of tapping into people's own personal philosophies, because as we know, people's political orientation doesn't always match with their own personal philosophy. So that's kind of interesting that you think there's still this sort of room for this technique to work on a wide variety of different people. Yeah, and you can kind of see this, this sort of basic approach is utilized by a lot of conservation groups. When they approach conservatives, they say, you know, we know that you care about really basic things in terms of like wanting to be a good steward of the land, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of wanting to be a good contributor to society. There's like really, you know, there is still um, sort of broad overlap in some values. How exactly that translates to very specific policies is going to be difficult, as you mentioned, because the closer you get to the policy itself, the more that people are going to kind of be like, oh, well, if I check my sort of political cliff notes, I know that as a conservative, I'm not supposed to support this. Right. right. Um, but I think that, you know, you can still make the argument. And especially when you're starting to see certain conservative leadership occasionally make a, an effort in some of these regards, I think you're going to get both this idea that like, oh, there's this kind of sanctioning from people in my party. And um, I do, in fact, have values that map onto this, right? So there is some potential, especially, if, like I said, if you get certain figures on the other side of the aisle to do something about it. Right, right. And the other thing I wanted to sort of touch on, which I thought was interesting in this study, was there was, you sort of touch on this like NIMBY issue or like not in my backyard. So even people that sort of like use that extra reflection task, they still didn't seem to support you used an example in the study of this high voltage transmission line that would be visible in their backyards. And it reminds me of the conversation around offshore wind turbines and people that own like beachfront properties were really hesitant. Like it's going to ruin my, you know, my property values. It's going to ruin my sight lines. It's not necessarily like a financial cost, but that sort of like quality of life or impeding my own personal space feels still like an obstacle as what you found. Yeah, we were curious, right, if this negative spillover concern, if it was constrained to any kind of cost, or if it Mm -hmm. really seemed to only pertain to potentially high financial personal costs that Mm -hmm. aren't framed as um, going initially to industry. And what we found was that for a policy without direct financial cost, 
like having power lines, like high voltage power lines be visible from your home, we no longer saw the effect. Like it really seems like that negative spillover effect is like super limited and mm -hmm. um, doesn't apply to that kind of aesthetic cost. But we asked people like how willing were they to have high transmission power lines visible from their home. So like not, you know, not like in your town, right? Just right. like even visible from your home. So it's still like a cost. Mm -hmm. And even in that scenario, we don't see negative spillover in the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. I should also note that in the second study, we try to find, we test that worst case scenario again, yeah. where people um, have the policy, it's framed as all the costs fall on you, and they reflect in a way that's devoid of their values and identities. And we didn't quite replicate the effect. So it seems to be perhaps noisy or fragile or small, or maybe all of the above. Yeah. So can you explain what like noisy or fragile means to our audience who may not quite understand what that means in a scientific context? Yeah, I'm just getting at the idea that it's hard to detect it. Like it's so small and our instruments yeah. are calibrated to pick up small <laughs> effects. Mm -hmm. But sometimes even with a really large sample, you just can't find an effect. Right. Um, the variability in your data tells you, I don't see a pattern here. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So there may or may not be something there, I guess. Even in the worst case scenario, we're not 100% sure this is a reliable finding. Yeah. yeah. And so as we sort of like start wrapping up here. I think one of the really interesting things that this study touches on is this sort of like competing agendas, I guess, right? Like there's the, okay, like what are the things I can do as an individual like person? And what are the things that like need to be enacted on a large scale, like by the government, for example, but our personal decisions also sort of like play into the decisions that corporations make and stuff like that is that sort of part of the decision making process within this framework yeah i think that there are a lot of routes to change and as an mm -hmm. individual you have a lot of levers that you can kind of grab at any moment like every mm -hmm. couple of years we get the opportunity to vote that's massive 100 mm -hmm. of the time you should be doing that you should be interrogating candidates and being even in the primary being like you know, there's two different climate plans here. Is one of them just insufficient? And you should be asking that question. Mm -hmm. um, but then most of the levers of change that we have available to us probably come in the form of our day-to-day -day lives, like the mm -hmm. food we choose to eat, how we choose to vacation, if we fly or not, um, if we're going to opt into a 100% renewable energy program for our homes, these kinds of things. And these things are also an important way to send a signal. And it's not just that our peers are listening and tend to kind of conform to the behaviors that we might do, but it's also the case that politicians and businesses have an ear to the ground as well. Um, and so I think that a lot of these realms are connected. And really mm -hmm. what we want is sort of a single banner where people go, you know, we're going to need both the lifestyle changes and the policy changes in order to get us across the finish line for a problem as grand as climate change. And we want people to know that when we take these actions, it's because we're committed to all of the above. Yeah. And so how can your research, not just in this study, but you're really focused on this idea of like the sort of psychological underpinnings of social change and how that operates. Like, how do you think this research and this type of research can sort of be used in order to sort of enact more climate change policies? Like, what do you hope this sort of spurs? Two things. One is they're sort of what I would consider perhaps infighting among some of the people concerned about climate, especially those concerned about climate policy, mm -hmm. where they've perhaps suggested that, you know, we just can't focus on behavior because it will like at most have a small impact and at worst 
it'll distract from climate policy, which is what's really needed. And this data suggests probably not. That probably seems to be a very limited phenomena. And even in that worst case scenario, people make these connections. So one way that I think this helps is that we can all kind of come back to the same team here and say that we need both. And in fact, you don't have to worry too much about encouraging both because people see them as complements, not necessarily substitutes. It's not a zero-sum motivation system for most people most of the time. That's not how it seems to be working. Yeah, and I think there's sort of this notion of this sort of like, if you're doing something and it makes you feel better about it, like you're just kidding yourself. It's this like empty virtue signaling like to the outside world and it's not doing anything. you know. And I, I've definitely heard that sort of pushback. Um, and that's sort of what drew me to this research. So like, how do you combat that sort of like, I don't know, I guess it's like this sort of dismissive or like not trusting sort of attitude, I guess. Yeah, um, I do think that it's important to keep a cynical eye out just in case for these kinds of things. <laughs> of course. But in this case, I don't think they should be quite as worried because the majority of the time, what seems to happen is that when we take actions, it's not just that we pat ourselves on the back and then we don't vote on the policy later. We come to sort of develop an identity and a set of values around the actions that we see ourselves doing. And so we're deepening our commitment to those causes by taking these actions. And so when the policy does come around and it's a costly one, and we think to ourselves, am I the kind of person who cares about the climate? We can reflect on our actions and go, yeah, I do seem to be someone who cares about this. I will pass this policy. That's Greg Sparkman. He's a postdoctoral psychology researcher at the Anlinger Center for Energy and Environment at Princeton University. And his latest study was recently published in the journal Energy Research and Social Science. Greg, thanks so much for being here. This has been really fascinating. Thank you for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.